0: My name is Charles, and I'm from Minnesota. I stumbled upon your YouTube channel at the beginning of this year. I'm a retired forest ranger, having spent the better part of three decades working for the US Forest Service's Law Enforcement and Investigations Division. Since my retirement, I've had plenty of time on my hands, and over the past few months, I've spent a lot of that time listening to various anthologies that you've published. I think it's awesome that you publish the stories of regular folks like me. So, With that in mind, I think I have a story that you might be interested in. It seems a little strange that I'm so excited to tell you about this, as it's not exactly the kind of thing most people wanna hear. I used to wonder how you get so many people wanting to share their bad memories with you. But after having thought about it for a while, I think I've figured it out. These aren't the kind of things that we can talk about around the dinner table in polite company, and I've never had a single person ask me in the flesh. What was the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? People don't want to know, at least not the kind of people I've ever associated with. But at the same time, these are things that, for whatever reason, we want to share with people. And much like your channel's viewers, I'm pretty apt to lend my ear to a story that's a little darker. So without further rambling, this is the story of one of the truly terrifying moments in my time as a forest ranger. For the vast majority of my career, I was posted in the Voyagers National Park up near the Canadian border. Since the park is split in two by a series of lakes, it's popular with fishermen and kayakers. But these lakes are also populated by many small islands, many of which are popular camping spots. People come up to the VNP to get away from the city and get some privacy, and it doesn't get much more private than your own personal island, does it? Well, one afternoon I got a call from a chief ranger asking me to do him a little favor. He had gotten a call from the International Falls Police Department, a small border city about 20 miles to the west, after an officer over there had received a missing persons report. Some lady's husband had gone on a camping trip with an old friend, and had failed to return after being due back that morning. My husband was to head over to their regular camping spot on a place called Wolf Island to see if they'd moved on or not. The Ranger team at VNP is probably one of the most amphibious in the country definitely the most waterborne in the region. Half of our job consists of policing the waterways and making sure all fishing and boating is within regulation. So not only do we have ready access to kayaks and motorboats, but we're very comfortable operating them. So when I got the call, I headed to the Ash River Visitor Center, which was where we docked our boats. But then, just as I'm prepping the boat to sail over to Wolf Island, I get a second call from the chief. The IFPD had reached out with an update one I needed to be informed of immediately. According to the chief, this wasn't just a case of two fishermen having overslept after too many Miller lights. The missing man's son had been in touch, and this time it was to warn law enforcement that not only was his father most likely armed, but he had been acting extremely erratically prior to departing for the camping trip. This is not what I'd been hoping to hear when I'd heard that there was an update, but I was more than equipped to deal with the situation Seeing as I was on the law enforcement side of things as opposed to working solely at the visitor center, I had pretty much all the same options as your average police officer. But that didn't mean that I wasn't feeling a sense of apprehension regarding what I might run up against. Nine times out of 10 incidents in the park are resolved quickly and peacefully. But as you can probably guess, it's that one in 10 that keeps you up at night. So after prepping the boat, I sailed west for around 20 to 25 minutes until I spotted Wolf Island. After using my binoculars to observe the island from a safe distance, I could make out a slight plume of smoke coming from its eastern side. I could have really done with some kind of bullhorn to call out to the missing camper, but I didn't have the good sense to bring one. So I was forced to bring my boat right up to within about 20 or 30 feet of the shore before calling out using nothing but my lung power. I called out once and then twice, and after the third call received no response, I decided to make landfall in order to get a visual on the campfire, which presumably had been started by our missing camper. I brought the boat up a little closer, hopped overboard, then waded my way ashore, calling out to our missing camper all the while. I could smell the campfire by that point, along with whatever was cooking on it, so I was doubtless within earshot of whoever had been tending to it. But since no one called back, and since I didn't see anyone as I walked up the beach... I figured whoever had made camp had moved on, yet as I walked further onto the island in search of the source of the smoke, something caught my eye. For as long as I live, I'll remember this in photographic detail. It runs in my head on its own sometimes, like someone pressed play on a remote control in my brain. I saw something falling out of the corner of my eye, and when I looked, I saw it was a raven, landing to join some of its brothers and sisters. But then I saw what it was landing on. There was a man sitting in a camping chair, not quite upright, but not all the way slouched either, with a big old hole in the upper rear portion of his skull. One of the ravens was pushing its beak into the hole while a few others fought over whatever had leaked onto the ground. The body accounted for one of our missing campers, but I didn't have to wait long to find the second. Lying motionless next to the campfire was what remained of the second missing camper. Someone had made the effort to cut off his legs, I'm guessing after he was deceased, and had worked on cutting them into small sections before placing them onto the fire. What had been smelling on the way in hadn't been the camper's late lunch, it had been a section of the second camper's leg sizzling away on the dying embers. I guess the guy in the chair hadn't the heart to finish disposing of his camping buddy and had decided to let nature take its course on both of them. We never did find out why it happened, but we did figure out how the killer had invited his friend on a camping trip to their regular spot. He hadn't hidden anything from his wife or anyone else for that matter, which led us to believe that his decision to kill his camping buddy was either a spontaneous one, or that he had planned to simply kill him before taking his own life as a way of avoiding any consequences. He obviously wanted to conceal what he'd done, at least at one point we believed he had. but then. This is where another argument for the spontaneous murder theory comes into play. Personally, I don't believe that he'd taken the time to research just how arduous the disposal of a dead body can be. There was no accelerant at the scene, so I don't think he'd planned to burn his friend's body. And when it became obvious that it was going to take way longer than he'd thought, and that law enforcement might well come looking for him or his dead friend before the disposal could be completed, I think he decided to just check out there and then. There was a somber mood among the park staff for a while after that. As far as I knew, nothing like that had ever happened before, and nothing like that happened again for the remainder of my career. As you can probably guess, national parks aren't exactly high crime areas, and at the VNP, the most intense things generally get is catching up to a speeding boating party so you can tell them to slow down. So to have something so terrible happen right under our noses had a real strong effect on our mood during the weeks that followed. Sometimes I think about what happened in that guy's head to make him want to murder one of his best friends. Like I said, we didn't hear about any affairs or betrayals or anything else that might cause a man to temporarily go crazy. It's all just one big mystery. And like so many other of life's mysteries, I think I'm a lot more comfortable living in blissful ignorance. I've always been drawn to the calm and beauty of the great outdoors, so I decided to become a park ranger in a small rural state park known as Croft State Park, nestled deep in the heart of the dense forest. The park was a haven for hikers and nature enthusiasts alike, but little did I know it was also a haven for something much darker and more sinister. I had heard the rumors about Croft State Park long before I accepted the job. People talked of strange occurrences, eerie voices in the wind and shadowy figures that wandered through most of the night. Most dismissed it as superstitious nonsense, but I couldn't help but be intrigued by the stories. I figured it was probably all just local legend, and I was determined to prove the skeptics wrong. My first few weeks as a park ranger were actually quite peaceful. I spent my days patrolling the serene trails and ensuring the safety of visitors. The park seemed like any other, with the rustling leaves and the chirping of birds providing a soothing backdrop to my working environment. But as the days turned into weeks, and summer transitioned into fall, I noticed oddities I couldn't quite explain. One chilly evening, I was finishing my rounds when I heard it for the first time, a soft haunting whisper carried on the breeze, just barely audible over the sound of my footsteps. I stopped dead in my tracks, trying to make out the words. The voice sounded distant and mournful, as if it were calling out to me from the shadows. My heart raced as I scanned the darkening forest, but no one was in sight. I brushed off the experience as a trick of the wind, but the whispers continued to haunt my nights in the park. I heard them when I was alone in my cabin, their ethereal tones seeping through the wooden walls. They echoed through the trees as I walked the trails making me feel like I was being watched at every moment. The park that had once felt like my home now seemed like a foreign foreboding place. As the whispers grew louder, other strange occurrences began to take place. I stumbled upon ancient weathered totems and symbols etched into trees. They seemed to have no rhyme or reason, but their presence sent shivers down my spine. The wildlife, once abundant, started to slowly disappear leaving an eerie silence in its wake. The park's beauty had turned into a nightmarish landscape. One moonless night, as I patrolled the park alone, the atmosphere grew thick with an oppressive darkness. I knew I wasn't alone, and the fear gnawing at me for weeks finally erupted. I could hear footsteps that weren't mine, rustling leaves that couldn't be attributed to the wind, and the chilling laughter of children echoing through the trees. But when i shone my flashlight into the dense undergrowth no one was ever there dread settled in as i realized that the stories of croft state park were not just tales but a living nightmare it was as if the forest had come alive and evil forces intent on driving me away were tormenting me but i was a park ranger dedicated to my duty and i couldn't abandon my post i began researching the park's history searching for clues about its dark past It was then that I stumbled upon an old dusty journal hidden in the back of the ranger station. This was a diary that belonged to a former park ranger, and its entries chronicled a descent into madness. The ranger wrote of the whispers, the symbols, and the strange figures that had tormented him, until he had disappeared without a trace. Terrified by what I had read, I knew I had to confront whatever dark presence dwelled within Croft State Park. Armed with knowledge from the journal, I ventured deeper into the park, following the whispers to a long-forgotten clearing. There, I found a circle of weathered stones, their surfaces etched with symbols that matched those I had discovered on the trees. As I stood in the circle's center the whispers grew more insistent. The shadows around me seemed to take form, merging into a group of ghostly children. They giggled and sang songs from a bygone era, their voices filled with otherworldly sorrow. I knew I had to do something to break the curse that had plagued Croft State Park for centuries. With trembling hands, I recited the words from the journal, calling upon the spirits to release their hold on the park. The children's laughter turned to cries, and the symbols on the stones began to glow in an eerie light. The ground trembled, and the forest came alive with a furious wind. In a blinding flash the spirits were gone, and Croft State Park fell silent. The whispers faded, and the symbols on the trees vanished leaving the park in an eerie calm. I knew that I had done something. I don't know if it was what I needed to do, but that experience had taken a toll on me. I don't know how much of it was hallucination from being overly tired or just from being incredibly anxious, but I do know that this was not my imagination. Croft State Park was once a place of beauty and serenity to me, but it had been forever changed in my eyes. I had confronted the darkness that lurked within, and I had survived to tell the tale but the memory of that night would forever haunt that state park for me. It would never leave my mind, my memory forever etched with a constant reminder of otherworldly forces that can exist even in the most calm of places. I grew up in St. Louis, but I moved to Knoxville after enrolling at the University of Tennessee. During the summer between my freshman and sophomore years, I decided to sign up for a seasonal volunteer ranger program at the nearby Great Smoky Mountains National Park. My career aspirations leaned more towards sitting behind a desk, but the romanticized idea of being a park ranger had always fascinated me. Perhaps it was the allure of working outdoors, rescuing wounded animals, and becoming one with nature. So when the opportunity arose to play the part of a ranger for a month while donning my very own campaign hat, I couldn't resist. For seven long months, I eagerly looked forward to this adventure. However, my initial enthusiasm was met with a dose of reality. The seasonal volunteer program primarily served as a way to secure vacation time for the understaffed ranger teams. We were never entrusted with tasks that required real experience or expertise. Most of the time, myself and the other two volunteers found ourselves staffing the park's visitor center. The remaining 40% of the time, We were tasked with basic administrative work or boundary maintenance. Although it wasn't the exhilarating experience I had envisioned, I preferred the boundary maintenance tasks over being cooped up indoors. Boundary maintenance was essentially a fancy term for fence checking. My responsibilities involved walking long sections of boundary fence to ensure they were in good repair. It was during one of these hikes that I encountered someone I would never forget, even after all these years, I was near Cosby Creek, located on the eastern boundary of the park, an area of particular importance during boundary checks due to an old graveyard called Tritt Cemetery. We needed to ensure that wildlife didn't disturb the resting place of the deceased. After confirming the fences around the cemetery were intact, I continued eastward along the fence line for about 10 to 15 minutes. Suddenly I spotted movement ahead through the trees, the moment I laid eyes on the figure I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was as if my mind momentarily questioned the reality before me. The girl, who moved softly through the trees, was in a horrific state. She was completely naked, her skin marred with clotted blood and dried gore. Every inch of her body, from her hair down to her toes, was covered in blood. It was astonishing that she could even stand on her feet. Without hesitation, I rushed into action. I approached her as she collapsed into the dirt, removed my shirt, and used it to cover her as best I could. Gently, I picked her up and carried her back to my truck. Thankfully, I had found her not far from where I had parked. Exhausted by the time we reached my truck, I realized that there was an urgent care center in Newport, about 12 miles north of Cosby. I drove as fast as I could with the girl in the back seat, repeating, Don't close your eyes, you have to stay awake. She kept her eyes wide open, but remained silent, staring at nothing, until we finally arrived at the urgent care center. The medical staff immediately attended to her, and I explained the situation. It was here that my role in this ordeal ended. They informed me that the girl would be transferred to Sevierville, where a hospital with a dedicated emergency room was located. I offered to help further, but they advised me that the best course of action was to return to the chief ranger and inform him of the situation. When I walked into Ranger HQ, covered in blood, the Chief and my co-workers immediately sensed that something terrible had occurred. At first, they thought I was the one who had been hurt, but I assured them, it's not my blood. I recounted the events, and the Chief took notes. Since we had jurisdiction, the responsibility to investigate what had happened to the girl fell on us. The only other entity that could legally take over would be the FBI either if we requested their assistance or if they decided to intervene. Our team prepared to investigate, but that's when things took a strange turn. We needed to speak with the girl to understand what had happened, but when the chief contacted the hospital and spoke with the doctors, we learned that she hadn't uttered a word since her arrival. She wouldn't speak to the doctors, the nurses, or anyone else. This wasn't entirely surprising, considering the trauma she must have endured, but it complicated our efforts. The doctors advised us to check back the next day, hoping she might open up then. We waited until the early afternoon of the following day and called the hospital again. However, to our dismay, the girl still refused to speak. The chief decided to visit the hospital, and he asked me to accompany him, hoping that my presence might encourage her to talk. We discussed the investigation during the drive to the hospital, unaware of the bizarre turn it was about to take. When we arrived at the hospital, we found the nursing staff in a state of panic. It took a while to figure out what had happened, but when we did, we were shocked beyond belief. The hospital had lost our victim. Surveillance camera footage revealed a man dressed in hospital scrubs pushing a wheelchair through the hospital's main entrance just after 1.15 p.m. He wore some sort of ID clip and managed to bypass the reception desk, heading straight for the girls' room. He placed her in the wheelchair and wheeled her right out of the hospital, without any interference from the staff. This was a massive breach of the hospital's protocols, but without any information about the girl or her apparent abductor, we had limited options. The only course of action was to involve the FBI, as we feared that the person who had taken the girl from the hospital might be connected to her initial predicament. We hoped that this would lead to a full-fledged investigation. However... When we followed up with the FBI about a month later, we were met with disappointment. Someone higher up in the Bureau had decided that the case wasn't worth pursuing. They weren't interested in allocating resources to a case where the primary charge might be impersonating a healthcare professional. It seemed that without hard evidence or the girl's testimony, the case had hit a dead end. I wasn't satisfied with this outcome. If it were up to me, I would have chased this case to the ends of the earth to find out what had happened to that poor girl. But it wasn't up to me. I wasn't even a full-fledged ranger at the time. When my volunteer stint ended, I went back to my studies, but I never forgot what I had witnessed. Years later, when the time felt right, I decided to share this unsettling story with my daughter. It might seem strange to share such a frightening and bizarre tale with a teenager, but I believed there was a lesson to be learned from it. When I drove back to Ranger HQ after leaving the girl at the urgent care center, I had assumed that the Ranger team and other law enforcement agencies would fight tirelessly to bring her attackers to justice. However, what I learned was that the world wasn't always as just and straightforward as I had once believed. Sometimes even those entrusted with our protection could act indifferently or apathetic. It was a harsh lesson to learn, but I wanted my daughter to understand that life could be unpredictable and that justice wasn't always guaranteed. Monsters might exist, but they come in various forms, and sometimes the pursuit of justice could be fraught with obstacles and bureaucracy. As I shared this story with my daughter, I couldn't help but reflect on how the pursuit of justice had become a far cry from the image of the heroic lawman riding on a fast horse with a shiny badge. In the modern world, Justice was more about paperwork, bureaucracy, and budgets. It was a sobering realization, but one that I hoped would prepare my daughter for the complexities of the world she would face. I live next to Yellowstone National Park, a place that has drawn millions of tourists every year for as long as I can remember. It's a breathtakingly beautiful area known for its majestic landscapes, geothermal wonders, and abundant wildlife. However, my story is not about the park's natural beauty, it's about a chilling encounter I had on the outskirts of this renowned wilderness. The summer of 2020 was an exciting time for many of us, as things started to return to normal after a period of lockdowns. It was during this time that some of my buddies and I decided to have a night out camping near a spot we had frequented in the past. This spot, like many others in the area, operated on a first-come, first-served basis. To secure our place, I headed up there early to make sure our campsite was still set up from an earlier visit that day. As the sun began its descent, I left my house, confident that my friends would join me within the hour. The drive to the location took me about 30 minutes, a picturesque journey through winding roads and dense forests. I had no concerns about being alone since my friends were on their way. Upon my arrival, I immediately noticed something was amiss. My tent and all its contents had vanished without a trace. To provide some context, I had meticulously staked the tent down in multiple areas to ensure it would withstand the duration of my absence. Inside the tent, my sleeping bag and a few miscellaneous items remained, which I had left behind to weigh it down. But now, Everything was gone, as if it had never existed. Even the stakes and rocks I had placed outside to secure the tent were missing. A chill crept down my spine, as I knew something was terribly wrong. I had not seen any other campers on the way up, and I had no cell service to call for help. Deciding to drive back down to seek assistance and reach my friends, I realized the culprits must still be lurking nearby, as they had been there for only an hour or two. My friends urged me to stay, pointing out the weeks of planning that had gone into this trip. Reluctantly, I decided to stay, believing I would eventually locate my belongings in the morning and report the incident to the Forest Service. I didn't want to ruin the experience for my friends. As the night wore on, things seemed relatively normal. Around 1 or 2 in the morning, most of my friends decided to call it a night. I opted to sleep in my truck, a decision I now appreciate as one of the wiser choices of that night. I always came prepared with bear spray and a sidearm for protection against any unexpected guests. Though I attempted to relax, I couldn't shake off the unease that lingered from the theft of my belongings just hours earlier. I left my truck window slightly open, thinking I might hear any approaching sounds during the night. After about two hours of fitful sleep, my worst nightmare unfolded. At first I heard rustling noises outside the perimeter of the campsite. The noise was enough to jolt me awake, and I lay motionless in my truck. I knew it couldn't be a small creature like a raccoon. The sound was too significant. Paralyzed with fear, I listened intently to the strange occurrence outside the camp. My first thought was a bear, as there had been recent sightings in the area, and the noise was coming from only twenty to thirty yards away. An unsettling aspect was the eerie silence that surrounded me. Typically there would be the sounds of grasshoppers or birds, but this time it was oppressively silent, an ominous sign in the wilderness indicating the presence of a large predator or something equally foreboding. After approximately 15 minutes of complete silence, I attempted to convince myself that I was merely being paranoid. Just as I was about to fall back asleep, I noticed movement to the right of our campsite, roughly 20 yards from me. To my absolute horror, a figure emerged from the darkness. This was no ordinary person. Not only was it the middle of the night, but we were in someone else's campsite, deep in the wilderness. The figure wore a mask, and I got a chilling glimpse of it, a deer skull. Their attire consisted of a black robe, and that's about all I could discern. I didn't dare leave the safety of my truck to confront this stranger, and so I took the best course of action I could think of. I turned on my truck and began incessantly honking the horn until all my friends were awakened. I rolled down the window and urgently informed them that we needed to leave immediately. The figure remained still, unperturbed by the blaring noise. It was at that point that the situation took a turn for the worse. More of these eerie figures began materializing in front of us, emerging from the dense trees. They all wore similar outfits, but I couldn't comprehend their grotesque masks which seemed like a macabre collage of deer and other animal skulls. I hastily shifted my truck into reverse and sped away from the campsite, adrenaline surging through my veins. We were pursued by these unsettling figures who seemed to grow increasingly aggressive with every passing moment. They hurled rocks and sticks at us, chasing our vehicle relentlessly. At one point they were so close that I could see them through my passenger window, their twisted faces contorted with malice. I accelerated, leaving them behind and eventually losing them in the dark forest. As I sped away I glanced in my rearview mirror and saw only one of them left, peering out from behind a tree. The image of that sinister figure bathed in the dim moonlight is forever seared into my memory. Since that harrowing night I have vowed never to return to that area. I kept the incident to myself, even when around friends who shared similar experiences. It has been over a year now and all I can say is that I believe those individuals were part of some sinister cult. I have heard other stories of strange occurrences happening around Yellowstone, cattle disappearing, fences being removed, and other unexplainable phenomena. While I can't say for sure what's happening, I can attest to the palpable sense of dread that washed over me that fateful night, a feeling that has left an indelible mark on my psyche. The story I'm about to tell you is strange all on its own but to understand why it continues to haunt me long after it occurred, you'll need a little background information. I tied the knot with my now ex-husband in 1987. We were madly in love with each other and had every intention of staying together until we were old and gray. But the truth was, we wouldn't last five years. We had trouble getting pregnant, so we went to a fertility doctor for tests. That's when I found out I was incapable of bearing children. It didn't seem like the end of the world, not at first, anyway. We discussed both the possibilities of adoption and living a child-free lifestyle. I thought our marriage was strong enough to survive something like that, but I was wrong. When he filed for divorce, I was heartbroken. I had never really experienced true heartbreak until then. If he had said from the get-go, look, babe, I can't be with someone who can't have my kids, then at least I'd have had more time for it to sink in and for me to get over it but it was how he raised up my hopes before dashing them that hurt more than anything else. I couldn't bear to be around him after that. He wanted an amicable split, but I just didn't have it in me to remain friends with him. I guess that must make me seem pretty immature to some people, but I just wasn't emotionally equipped to deal with something like that. I left town, moved back in with my parents for a few months, and then set about deciding what I wanted to do with my life. It might sound silly, but I had half expected my role in life to be a mother and homemaker. I know that isn't exactly shooting for the stars to some, but it was all I ever really wanted, a simple, happy life, and it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realize that I could be happy being something other than a housewife. During that time when I was finally able to go outside without bursting into tears at the first sight of a mother and child, I spent a lot of time hiking woodland trails. The peace and seclusion helped me put my mind back together again. But the more I did, the more I realized something about myself. I could quite happily spend the rest of my working days walking around the woods in relative peace and quiet. When I mentioned that to my dad, he very casually suggested something that changed my life forever. Why don't you apply to the Forest Service? He asked one day. I remember trying to think of a reason why that wasn't possible. I couldn't picture myself being a ranger. But back then, I could hardly picture myself doing anything at all except crying myself to sleep every night after hours upon hours of just terrible television. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there were no reasons I couldn't be a park ranger. Since I didn't have a bachelor's degree, I'd have to intern for a full two years before being offered a full-time position, but that didn't bother me. I sure didn't have anything else going on for me at the time, so I decided to just go for it. Having grown up in Garrett County, Maryland, I sometimes pictured myself walking the Appalachian Trail during the warm summer months, wearing one of those smoky Bear hats. But when it came time to applying for internships, there was only one place accepting applicants, and that was Acadia National Park up in Maine. I'd never pictured myself living that far north, and I wondered how I was going to survive the winters up there, but it also offered a new start and a new place. Far from the painful memories I wanted so much to leave behind. So, in the late summer of 1992, I packed up my things and moved up to the small hamlet of Seal Harbor. I moved into a small rental house on a street called, and this is not a joke, Hill Away. I never did figure out if it was some sort of nod to Dr. Seuss or not. None of my neighbors had a definitive answer, but it was a nice, quiet place to live, and it made getting to and from the park every day much easier. I interned for two years, completed all the necessary training, and by the fall of 1994, I was a fully-fledged member of the Acadia Ranger team. Badge and all. There was a presentation ceremony, which my mom and dad traveled up for, especially. I experienced feelings of pride and self-belief that at one point I'd never have thought possible. I considered it a huge achievement, and there's no denying how happy it made me, but I still felt this sort of baby-sized hole in my life, one I knew that I'd never be able to fill. Now, cut to about a year later, to June of 1995, and I was completing a land inspection near a rocky hill named Connor's Nubble. Once I was done, I turned around and started walking the two miles back to Park HQ. But as I got closer to the shores of Eagle Lake, I decided to take a shortcut between two trails to save some time. It wasn't a well-walked section of the trail, and I had never taken the shortcut before, but I knew the park well enough to know that if I worked my way through the undergrowth, I'd come out on the opposite trail and have a much easier hike back to HQ. So that's what I did. I turned off the trail and was walking through the trees when suddenly something caught my foot. I didn't see the thing at all, meaning I was so caught off guard that the stumble almost sent me crashing into the dirt. So after calling whatever it was a mother lover, I decided to kick away some shrubs to see exactly what had almost taken me out. I figured it'd be a rock of some description, and if it was possible to do so, I planned on digging it up and tossing it to one side to ensure that no one would be tripping over it again. Some might call this a little extreme, but it becomes second nature to make the park as safe a place as possible for visitors and co-workers alike. One thing you learn as a forest ranger is that a lot of things are completely out of your control, which then teaches you to always act on the stuff you can control. Anyway. After stamping my foot down to find the thing that had tripped me and then kicking away the shrubs around it, I was surprised by what I saw. It couldn't have been a rock, the shape was way too unnatural. After wiping away some of the soil around it I caught a glimpse of something that looked a lot like a seam. And if it had a seam, then it might just be some kind of box that someone had buried there sometime in the recent or distant past. But no matter what it was, I didn't have the time nor the energy to stop what I was doing and dig it up. So instead, I tried to mark out the spot as best I could, stamping down more of the undergrowth to make the clearing more visible, and then made my way back to HQ. I mentioned the thing in passing to one of my co-workers, and although she wasn't exactly shocked, she did show some interest. I know for a lot of you the first thing that comes to mind is some kind of buried treasure, and with Northeast Harbor boasting some summer residents such as the Rockefellers no less, it wasn't out of the question that something valuable had been buried there. But even so, no one was rushing to go dig it up. I mean, I didn't even really know what it was, so while the box remained of interest, digging it up wasn't a priority by any stretch of the imagination. A few days went by, and then one afternoon, I found myself with a few spare hours. But rather than finish early for the day, I decided to grab a shovel head down to the shortcut near eagle lake and dig up the box to find out exactly what it was it made for hard and sweaty work but after maybe an hour or so of digging i was finally able to see that yes it was a box no bigger than the kind that you'd buy shoes in it looked like it had been buried there for a long time i heaved it from the dirt dusted it off and set about pulling away the rotten twine from the latch where a padlock might have otherwise been. I'll admit to being quite excited at the time, and it didn't once occur to me that it could have been anything sinister. But when I opened the box and lifted up a rotten piece of cloth away from whatever was inside, I gasped and slammed the lid shut after catching just a glimpse. It wasn't gold or silver or jewels, Nor was it a murder weapon from some decades old murder, as one ranger had suggested with a chuckle. It was a skeleton, the tiny newly formed skeleton of a departed newborn. I didn't touch anything else, I just ran back to HQ to tell people what I'd found. Soon, almost everyone on duty that day was down near Eagle Lake, and not long after, several other state troopers and the whole forensics team arrived. But before they all got there and taped off the scene, our chief ranger looked inside the box just to see for himself what was in there. Like I said, I only got a glimpse, but I saw enough to know what I was looking at. Where is the chief? He took a long, hard look at that poor little thing, long enough to see the things I hadn't. I couldn't bring myself to look at it again for a long time, but when the chief said the skeleton looked all wrong, he was right. I had never seen a baby skeleton before, so it wasn't like I was an expert. But all who saw it agreed that the skull seemed way too large, and the arm seemed way too long, as one of us put it. The poor little thing barely looked human, but it was, because the genetic testing came back positive as being entirely human in origin. In the end, we pieced together a very sad chain of events. Sometime between 1920 and 1930, some unsuspecting mother gave birth to a heartbreaking disabled child. There was a chance that this child died of natural causes because there were no signs of any trauma on the skeleton, but that didn't rule out the possibility that someone had taken it upon themselves to personally end the child's suffering. Then, after the child was gone, someone placed it in what would have been at the time an expensive felt-lined box, then buried it deep in the woods where no one might ever find it. Why they might opt to do that instead of giving the child a proper funeral, I have no idea. But the reason couldn't have been a good one, cut to almost eighty years later and some slowly growing tree root had pushed it further and further to the surface over time until just a nub was sticking above the ground. A little nub that I just so happened to have stumbled over. Seeing as the child's body was found on federal property, we were able to enlist the help of the FBI's DNA analysis unit down in Quantico, like I think I already mentioned. We were hoping that we might get a match on a distant relative that had a file but nothing came back positive. This little kid had no name, no date of birth, and its only possession was the small improvised coffin we found it in. We also heard from the FBI that the child's large skull, which they called macrocephaly, was probably the result of a genetic disorder such as Weaver's or Soto's syndrome. From what I can understand, conditions like those are relatively easy to treat today. But back then, some poor kid born in bad circumstances wouldn't have nearly the same chances. It all makes for a heartbreaking story. Even our most probable theories were nothing but speculation. But no matter which way you cut it, whatever happened to that child had been simply awful. And that's not why the whole thing has haunted me for all these years, not the story on its own anyway. Instead, it's been this. Sometimes, in my darkest moments, I feel like that poor baby was my own. I feel like it was a strange kind of destiny that brought me to that shortcut, And had me stumbling over its makeshift coffin i know that probably sounds like i'm losing my mind and it's definitely not an idea i've ever discussed out loud with anyone but it really is the way i feel sometimes i'm not able to have children but what i was given was the chance to bring peace in the form of a proper burial to a child whose real parents were unwilling or unable to give them one and in doing so, I think I've been able to get just a taste of how boundless and unconditional a mother's love can be, and for that, I'll always be grateful. I was feeling adventurous and decided to explore the Anastasia State Park independently. I had heard it was beautiful, with stunning ocean views and dense forests, The day was perfect for an outdoor adventurer like myself, with the sun shining and a gentle breeze blowing. I couldn't resist the allure of the unknown, so I set off on my journey. As I began my exploration, I noticed how quiet it really was around me. The only sounds I could hear were the rustling of leaves under my feet and the occasional bird making some sort of chirping sound. I walked for a couple of hours, taking in the breathtaking scenery around me. The ocean views were indeed spectacular, and the dense forests had an eerie yet enchanting quality. But as the sun started to set, I realized I had lost track of time, and honestly I had no idea where I had ended up. I tried to retrace my steps as best as I could, but every direction I turned seemingly looked the same. Anxiety started to creep in, and a sense of fear began to gnaw at me. The forest had become dark, and the silence once peaceful now seemed almost deafening. The rustling of leaves underfoot now sounded like footsteps behind me. I tried my best to stay calm, but a shiver of unease ran down my spine. I attempted to call out for help, but my voice echoed through the trees without any response. The forest's darkness started to play tricks on my mind, and I could swear I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. My heart raced, and I couldn't control the growing sense of panic. I started to run, hoping to find my way back to civilization. But as i ran the forest only seemed to get darker and more ominous strange noises and whispers filled the air but i couldn't quite make out what they were saying after what felt like an eternity of desperate flight i stumbled upon an abandoned cabin relief washed over me momentarily but that relief was short-lived i noticed the door was slightly ajar and as i pushed it open the smell of decay filled my nostrils the cabin appeared to have not been inhabited for quite some years but there was fresh blood on the walls. Terror gripped me, and I knew I had to leave that place immediately. I sprinted out of the cabin and back into the darkness of the forest. The footsteps behind me had returned, and I knew I was being pursued. Panic overtook me once more, and I tripped and fell. As I looked up, I saw a shadowy figure looming over me, their features obscured by the dim light. Fear paralyzed me. And the last thing i remember was the sound of my own screams echoing through the forest as i was dragged away into the suffocating darkness i woke up what felt like many hours later disoriented and completely confused in the woods i had no memory of how i got there or what had happened to this day i have never returned to anastasia state park and i doubt i ever will it took me several hours to finally figure out my whereabouts during the daytime hours And luckily, I was able to follow a trail of smoke from a local campfire. Eventually, I found help. But that night still haunts me in my nightmares, and I've learned to never underestimate the dangers of exploring unknown territories alone. I don't know what happened to me that night or who or whatever that shadowy figure was. The mystery lingers, and I'm left with the chilling memory of that fateful adventure. I hope you don't mind if I share my own park ranger story with you, inspired by the tales you've been sharing. I used to be a ranger at Kenu National Park for seven years, from 1985 to 1992. Canoe, nestled in the Idaho Panhandle less than 50 miles from the Canadian border, was a place of pristine forests, majestic mountains, and serene lakes in the summer. In winter, it transformed into a vast carpet of snow and ice, with the Sea River to the north and Lake Penn Oral to the south. The park was a land of ridges and valleys, and it was in one of these valleys that I experienced a terrifying encounter on my last day on the job. I was going about my regular duties, minding my own business, and enjoying the serene beauty of the park, when suddenly, I felt an intense, searing pain on the right side of my hip. It was as if Prime Mike Tyson himself had punched me. The force of the blow spun me around, and I collapsed to the forest floor, disoriented and in agony. But what followed was even more horrifying. Amidst my pain and confusion, I heard the unmistakable crack of a rifle shot echoing through the valley. My first instinct was to think it was an accident, perhaps an inexperienced hunter's mistake. The wilderness often witnessed such mishaps, which is why we had so many regulations in place. I couldn't see the shooter, so I started to call out desperately, don't shoot, I'm a ranger. With one hand pressed firmly against my bleeding hip and the other waving wildly, I hoped to signal my identity and intent, but instead of a response, the shooter fired at me again. It was incomprehensible. Someone was deliberately trying to harm me. Panic surged through me as I struggled to make sense of the situation. Why would anyone want to harm a forest ranger? As I called out again, I'm friendly, stop shooting. The shooter responded by putting a bullet through the rotting log behind which I had taken cover. I realized that the shooter was not merely mistaken but intent on harming me. My heart raced as I comprehended the gravity of the situation. If I exposed myself again, they could easily take a shot, and I would be defenseless. I had only one option left to fight back. Before rolling onto my front, I checked if my legs were still functional enough to run. Then I positioned my body towards the direction of my parked truck. The shooter remained silent watching, waiting for me to make a move. The eerie stillness sent shivers down my spine. Summoning all my courage, I decided to make a bold move to break their focus. With my sidearm as my only weapon, I fired several rounds over the log. The deafening gunfire filled the valley, and then I rolled onto my side and sprinted wildly through the dense forest. Shots rang out behind me, and I heard the terrifying crack as a bullet flew just inches over my head. Running as fast as my adrenaline-fueled body would allow, I desperately sought cover. Eventually, I broke the shooter's line of sight and made it back to my truck, barely escaping with my life. I drove straight to the emergency room in Sandpoint, as Ranger HQ was too far away. My biggest fear was losing consciousness due to blood loss, but I was fortunate. A doctor later told me that the bullet had narrowly missed crucial arteries. Any deviation in its path and I might not have made it to the hospital. Given that the park was federal land, the FBI launched an investigation and collaborated with our Ranger team to search for the shooter. However, by the time they arrived, the assailant had vanished without a trace. They scoured the park for any evidence, from boot prints to bullet casings, but it seemed as if my attacker had left no clues behind. During one of my interviews with the FBI agents, they shared a chilling theory. Months before my ordeal, a team of U.S. Marshals had encountered a violent standoff in Boundary County involving a man named Randy Weaver. This incident had attracted widespread media attention and created a volatile atmosphere. Some agents believed that my attack might be linked to this event, speculating that my role as a federal representative made me a target for revenge, fueled by the infamous Ruby Ridge incident. The FBI never managed to apprehend the person who had shot at me. And to this day they remain at large perhaps they live with the guilt of their actions or the fear of consequences but regardless i doubt i could ever accept an apology from them not until i can afford that second round of hip surgery anyway the morning sun spilled golden light over the rugged peaks of the park a sprawling expanse of wilderness that had become my charge, my sanctuary, my responsibility. I'd always pictured being a park ranger as a tranquil vocation, a caretaker of nature's grandeur. The job description, however, neglected to mention the moments that would shatter the calm, leaving you with a lingering sense of disquiet that no amount of mountain air could dispel. As I patrolled the familiar trails in my truck, The scent of pine and earth was a constant companion. The park was an untamed thing, both fierce and beautiful, with rivers that carved through the land and forests that whispered secrets. I offered directions to a young couple eager for adventure, their faces alight with the joy of the unexplored. That was part of the job I loved, being a guide to those who sought to lose themselves in nature, if only to find something new within. By midday I'd made my rounds, checked licenses, shared polite nods with anglers who were more hopeful than successful, and steered day hikers away from paths that were less forgiving than they appeared. It was the routine I relished, a steady rhythm like the ebb and flow of the seasons, until it wasn't. It was by chance following the trail of an eagle soaring overhead that I stumbled upon the campsite. Five tents stood in a clearing, a stone's throw from the trail their fabric doors were zipped tight against intruders of any kind it struck me as odd the stillness of it all by this hour the occupants should have been up and about their laughter and chatter mingling with the sounds of the forest but there was nothing only silence i cleared my throat the sound harsh in the quiet and announced myself park ranger i called out expecting the rustle of movement the emergence of sleepy faces but the forest held its breath and the silence grew heavier. Anyone there? My voice was louder this time, tinged with the unease that crept into my bones. The absence of response weighed on me as I approached the nearest tent. A flicker of something like dread fluttered in my chest as I reached for the zipper. I'm going to open up, I warned, my hand unsteady. The tent interior was a portrait of orderliness. Sleeping bags neatly rolled, provisions tucked away, no sign of hasty departure or struggle. It was as if the campers had simply vanished, leaving behind a tableau of an interrupted life. The embers of their last fire were cold, and the low hum of insects was the only soundtrack. With methodical precision I checked each tent, finding the same unsettling meticulousness. A sense of wrongness settled over me, like a cloud casting a shadow over the sun-dappled ground. Something about this place, about today, felt off-kilter. I was no stranger to the occasional bout of intuition, the ranger's sixth sense that something in the woods was amiss. This time it screamed at me, a silent alarm that rang clear as a bell in my mind. By the time I re-zipped the final tent, my decision was made. I would return to the trailhead, check for vehicles. Perhaps they'd gone into town, I reasoned. But as I made my way back, the unease grew. Each rustle in the underbrush, each snap of a twig, seemed amplified a chorus of disquiet that sang a warning i was a man of the wild a steward of these lands but in that moment as the shadows lengthened and a chill descended with the setting sun i couldn't shake the feeling that i was the one being watched the one out of place in the untamed vastness of the park the afternoon waned light filtering through the towering pines and shards that barely touched the forest floor i should have been back at the station filing reports finishing up paperwork instead i was here at the edge of a clearing that had no right to be as silent as a grave i let the engine idle the soft purr of the truck a stark contrast to the stillness outside the campsite was just as i left it tents standing sentinel in their neat little row i should have felt relief at the lack of chaos but my gut knotted tighter with every passing second with a sigh i killed the engine and stepped out the door shutting with a soft thud that seemed to echo through the trees. The air was different, charged, almost metallic. I couldn't shake the feeling that I had stepped into a different world, one that watched and waited with bated breath. Hello? My voice felt thin, devoured by the expansive silence. I walked the perimeter, boots crunching softly on the forest detritus. The campfire was a scatter of charred wood and ash, the remnants of human warmth long since dissipated, The sun dipped lower, a dying ember on the horizon, and shadows gathered with an eagerness that felt almost sentient. I checked my radio, ensuring it was on and within reach. Not that I expected trouble, but the ranger's creed of be prepared was etched deep in my bones. I approached the tents again, unzipping one and peering inside. It was untouched, a still life of what should have been a bustling campsite. I re-zipped it, a whisper of nylon, the only sound in a world gone mute. The forest had always been a living thing, full of whispers and rustles, the occasional snap of a branch, a comforting reminder of its vitality, but now it was as if every creature, every insect, had decided to hold its breath. And then, in an instant, it happened, the silence broke, but not with the return of life's symphony. No, it was the absence of sound that marked the change, a silence so profound so complete, it felt like a shroud. I froze, every sense straining against the unnatural quiet. My hand drifted to the canister of bear spray on my belt, the weight of it cold and reassuring against my palm. I scanned the tree line, searching for any sign of movement, any hint of life, but there was nothing, just the endless expanse of green and the growing dread that I was not alone. That's when I heard it, the softest whisper of a footfall, a muted crunch that sent a shiver down my spine. It was deliberate, a slow measured step that was too heavy to belong to any forest creature I knew. I pivoted, the bear spray raised in a silent threat. Show yourself, I demanded, the authority of my position a thin veneer over the throb of my racing heart. The steps continued, a slow circling of predator and prey. I was no stranger to the dangers of the wild, but this was different. This was a dance with something unknown, something that defied the natural order I had come to know. As the light faded and the forest closed in, I knew I had to make a choice, wait for the unseen to reveal itself or retreat to the safety of the trailhead. With a final look at the silent campsite, I turned my back on the unknown and chose the path that led away from the deepening shadows. But as I walked, I could feel it, the weight of unseen eyes, tracking every step, every breath, as night fell like a curtain on the day's disquieting end. Dawn broke with a cold clarity that morning, shards of sunlight cutting through the dense canopy, doing little to warm the chill that had settled in my bones. The park, a vast kingdom of green and wild things, had always been my refuge, but since yesterday it had taken on the menacing air of a crypt. I sat in my truck at the trailhead, the engine idling like a growl in the quiet, staring at the windshield but seeing the abandoned tents. The unease had festered overnight into a hard knot. Five tents, five souls unaccounted for. The solitude of the park now felt like isolation, and the silence of the campsite replayed in my mind, a haunting loop. With a grunt I grabbed the radio, the static crackle a harsh intrusion. I reported in providing descriptions, license plate numbers. The replies came back, locals, in their 20s. A weekend getaway with friends, friends who had now vanished into the wilderness. I stuffed the radio back into its cradle and stepped out of the truck, the crisp air biting at my cheeks. My eyes swept the parking area, four cars, one truck, a tableau untouched since yesterday. A sigh escaped me, fogging the air as I contemplated the next move. I retraced my steps down the trail, the same path I'd taken countless times before, But now, each rustle in the underbrush, each snapped twig, seemed loaded with intent. I was a man used to tracking, used to being the predator, not the prey. Yet the feeling of being watched had clung to me, a second skin I couldn't shake. Reaching the campsite, I found it as I'd left it, eerily pristine, the tent standing mute against the encroaching shadows. My hand hovered over the zipper of the nearest tent, hesitation a bitter taste in my mouth, I could feel the day's end approaching, the light waning, the forest preparing for its nocturnal secrets. The silence was suffocating, the lack of human noise, the absence of laughter and life. It was as if the earth had swallowed them whole. My call for assistance earlier was a decision made with reluctance, but as the sun dipped lower, painting the sky in strokes of fire and blood, I knew it was the right one. As the twilight deepened, a primeval instinct screamed within me. Something was wrong something beyond the scope of missing campers and abandoned gear. I was no longer a guardian of the park. I had become part of a darker narrative, one written in the unseen and the unknown. I unholstered the bear spray, the canister cool and solid in my grip. I'd faced down charging elk, stared into the yellow eyes of mountain lions, but this, this was a fear without a face, a threat that slithered through the underbrush of my mind, leaving trails of dread. The first star blinked into existence as I made my decision. The campsite gave me nothing, the forest even less so. I would have to return to the station to mount a proper search. The night was no time to challenge the unknown, but as I turned to leave, a branch snapped with the sharpness of a gunshot and the forest fell deathly silent once more. The sense of being hunted, of being prey, was a mantle heavy on my shoulders as I made my way back to the trailhead the darkness at my heels, and the weight of the missing like a shroud upon the land. The sun shouldered its way above the horizon, spilling a pale light that did little to warm the chill in my marrow. I hadn't slept, couldn't even if I tried. The station was abuzz with activity, a stark contrast to the uneasy stillness of the woods. I sipped bitter coffee, watching the steam rise like specters into the cold morning air. The faces around me were taut with concern, the weight of the missing campers a silent drumbeat in everyone's mind. A specialist tracker had been called in, a wiry woman with eyes like flint and a gait that was all business. We huddled over maps, spread on the hood of a cruiser, her finger tracing the trails with a predatory precision. I felt the pull, the need to get back out there, to find answers, to find them. With the tracker leading, we made our way to the campsite. The tents looked forlorn in the morning light a tableau of abandonment that was at odds with the natural beauty surrounding us. I recounted the events of the previous day, my voice sounding hollow in the crisp air. The tracker moved with a silence that seemed to resonate with the forest. We found nothing new at the campsite, no signs of struggle, no traces of their passage. It was as if the earth had simply opened up and taken them. I watched her crouch, examining the ground, her movements precise, almost reverent. She paused, looked up, and met my gaze. "'We're not alone,' she said, her voice barely above a whisper. We pushed further into the woods, away from the campsite, away from the trail. It wasn't long before the tracker held up a hand, her body tense. There was a cave ahead, hidden by the foliage, its mouth open like a dark wound on the mountainside. We approached with caution, the air growing colder as we neared the entrance. A fetid smell wafted from the darkness, the scent of decay. The tracker signaled for me to follow, and we entered the cave, the beam from our flashlights cutting through the blackness. What we found within stopped me cold, a grisly scene, the remnants of violence etched into the very stone. Bones, some fresh, some old, littered the ground. The walls were painted with the evidence of savagery, and in the depths of the cave we saw it. The creature was an aberration, A thing of nightmares made flesh. It was hulking and misshapen, its eyes reflecting our lights with a malevolent intelligence. It moved with a startling speed, its growl a visceral thing that seemed to vibrate through the stone beneath our feet. We fought. The tracker was thrown aside like a ragdoll, her screams echoing off the walls. I sprayed the creature with bear mace, but it only seemed to enrage it further. The cave became a blur of movement and terror. I remember the cold shock of falling. The creature's breath hot on my neck, and then darkness as I hit the ground. When I came to the creature was gone, the tracker was silent and the weight of the dead pressed in around me. I scrambled to my feet, my mind a whirl of panic and fear. The cave, once merely a structure of stone, had become a tomb, a testament to the brutal reality that sometimes the wild is not just indifferent, but cruelly sentient. My consciousness clawed its way back a reluctant swimmer surfacing from the depths of a dark, cold lake. Pain lanced through my ribs with each ragged breath, a stark reminder of the creature's power. The tracker lay still, her chest barely rising, a grim tapestry of our struggle against the beast, etched in the dirt and blood around us. The cave was a cathedral of horrors, its walls wept with the blood of the creature's prey. The stench of death was omnipresent, an assault on the senses that threatened to overwhelm me. We were in the belly of the beast, both literally and figuratively. With effort, I propped myself up against the cold stone. My flashlights beam a feeble protest against the enveloping darkness. The silence of the cave was absolute, a pressing void that seemed eager to swallow any noise we might make. But the silence was a lie, I realized. It was the creature's accomplice, hiding its movements, masking its intentions. The tracker's eyes flickered open, confusion and fear warring in their depths before settling into a determined glare. We shared a nod, a silent agreement that we were not yet done, that we would not go quietly into that dark night. We moved, our bodies protesting, a symphony of aches and sharp stabs of pain. We had to find the hiker, the one we had seen moving in the pit, the pit, a grave not yet sealed a place of waiting for those the creature had chosen to toy with before the end. Our search was methodical, born of a desperation that sharpened our senses. We found her, the hiker, her eyes wide with terror and relief. We fashioned a rope from the detritus of the cave, clothing torn from the bodies of the less fortunate. She was weak but alive, and that was a victory against the darkness. We were not out of the creature's woods yet, though. It returned, a looming nightmare, its visage a grotesque mockery of nature. Its eyes held an intelligence that spoke of a malevolent awareness, a knowing that went beyond animal instinct. The fight was brutal, a dance with death in the pale light of our flashlights. I remember the sound of my own breath, ragged and ragged as I faced the monstrosity. It was a battle not just for life, but for sanity, against the realization that such things walked in the same world I had once thought I understood. In the end, it was a rock, A simple unassuming weapon wielded with the last vestiges of my strength that turned the tide the creature reeled its roar a sound that would haunt my dreams for years to come and then it was on me its weight a mountain its breath a gale of rot and malice but the creature was wounded its movements sluggish with a cry that was half scream half defiant roar i fought the beast faltered stumbled and then with a final effort i drove it off sending it crashing into the darkness. We collapsed, the hiker, the tracker, and I, a tangle of limbs and exhaustion. The danger was not yet past, but for a moment we could breathe, could allow ourselves the luxury of hope. Outside, the park was waking up, sunlight creeping across the land. But in the cave, we grappled with the aftermath of our encounter, the reality that the world was far stranger and more terrifying than we had ever imagined. The aftermath felt like walking through a dream the kind that lingers at the edges of your waking mind too tenacious to be dismissed by the morning light the creature lay still a mass of fur and flesh that no longer inspired fear just a profound sense of sorrow for the lives it had taken i emerged from the cave into the blinding light of a new day the air fresh with the scent of pine and the earthy musk of the forest the rescue teams had arrived a flurry of motion and urgent voices I watched them, their faces a blend of relief and horror as they took in the scene. The scattered remnants of the campers, the silence of the tracker, the ragged survivors we were. They asked questions, their notebooks ready to document the unbelievable. I recounted the events, my voice flat, the words tasting of dust and disbelief. The surviving hiker was whisked away on a stretcher, her eyes meeting mine in a silent thank you. I nodded. The gesture a feeble acknowledgment of the bond formed in the shadow of death. I sat on the bumper of an ambulance, the world around me a cacophony of radio chatter and boots on the ground. The head ranger approached, his expression a mix of concern and something akin to pride. You did good, he said, though the words felt hollow against the backdrop of such loss. The report they handed me was a litany of names, each a life snuffed out in the prime of their existence, twenty-six in total including the brave tracker who had fought alongside me. The creature, they speculated, was some aberration, a twist of nature's design that defied explanation. But in the end, it was dead, and with it died the nightmare that had gripped the park. I returned to the job, to the routine of trails and tourists, but something fundamental had shifted. The knife I had used to defend us against the creature rested heavy on my hip, its blade stained with the evidence of our struggle. I hadn't cleaned it, a silent tribute to those who hadn't made it out, and a reminder of the thin line between the known and the unknown. I carried more than just the knife now, a 44 Magnum, a weight on my other hip, a concession to the newfound knowledge that the wild held more than just beauty and tranquility. It was a burden I accepted, the weight of it a constant companion as I patrolled the same trails, watched over the same vistas. I became something new in the wake of that encounter. A guardian not just of the park and its visitors, but of the thin veneer that separates civilization from the wild chaos that lurks in the uncharted shadows. Each rustle in the underbrush, every snapped twig, now held the possibility of hidden dangers. But I was ready. Ready to protect, to serve, and if necessary, to confront the darkness. The creature had changed me, honed me into something harder, more vigilant. I was no longer just a park ranger. I was a sentinel at the edge of a mysterious and untamed world, forever watching, forever waiting.